The scripture reading for today is found in Ephesians 1, 11-14. There it is. All right, Ephesians 1, 11-14. It's found in your red Bibles on page 976. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, page 976. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also whom or when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Make their way down to Children's Church right now. Thank you. 
Suppose we'll give them a hall pass. But, you know. All right. All right. As we were sitting in my office with a good Christian brother, having fellowship, talking about following Jesus through suffering and adversity, and so much of the conversation had a re- just a really sweet spirit. The only kind of conversation about suffering. Um, that can possibly be sweet, must be Christian conversation about suffering. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That was the tone that we treasured together. But after a while, after about an hour into our conversation, we hit a bump in the road. And it was a bump significant enough that I I genuinely wondered if our conversation, perhaps our relationship, was going to recover. See, at one point in the discussion, I addressed this brother and I as sinners. Sinners. And though the exchange had been a pleasant one up to that moment, I realized that I had described myself and this gentleman, namely as sinners, and that my friend found, uh, at the very least, found that title objectionable. I beg your pardon, he said, just like that. I replied, "Uh, really, In the interest of clarity, not to mention ignorance and a little bit of stubbornness, I just doubled down and leaned in closer. Yes, I called you a a sinner, and me, a sinner. I replied, are are you telling me that you don't sin? He answered, of course I'm not saying that. Sadly, remainders of indwelling sin live in my heart, and I know will to some measure until I take my last breath to go to be with Jesus or he comes to be with me. But insofar as you use that term sinner to describe either you or me, you simply say something that is not true. In Christ we may sin, but we are not 
sinners. We are saints. Do you ever have one of those moments where you knew you were having one of those moments that would mark you for days, if not years, ahead? This is one of those moments. I went home that day and I logged on to Bible Gateway, which I would recommend if it's not on your immediate list of apps, you should just do that right now, BibleGateway.com. And I searched for the word sinner in the English Bible. It appears 68 times from Old to New Testament. And the vast majority of those occurrences, in fact, arguably, every last one of the occurrences of that noun in Holy Scripture never refer to someone in right relationship with God. Never in the Old Testament, not once. Never in the Gospels, not once. Why is this? Why does the Bible, much like my friend in the office that day, seem to have such an allergy to the concept of designating Christian believers as sinners? The answer, as you might have guessed by now, is is bound up with the doctrine that we are studying in the book of Ephesians, the doctrine of union with Christ. So here's the big idea today. Our fundamental identity in union with Christ is not primarily, if at all, Sinner, this overwhelmingly saint. Our fundamental identity in union with Jesus Christ is not primarily sinner. It's it's overwhelmingly saint. And if you need some orientation, let me wash you with some scripture from Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. I trust you hear those prepositions, don't you? Those wonderful little prepositions. In Christ Jesus, verse 1. In him, verse 4. Before him, that's what I missed, before. Before him, verse 4. Another relational connection. Those little connecting words are the only link we have Not to mention the only link we need to sainthood, to canonization. Now, once the fruit of sainthood has been secured by the root of union with Christ, Paul will go on to talk freely and quite frequently about Christians as saints throughout this letter. So chapter 1, verse 15, Paul speaks of the Ephesians Uh, of the love that they have toward all the saints. Chapter 1, verse 18 speaks of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says to the church, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Chapter 3, verse 8, Paul refers to himself as the very least of all the saints. Chapter 3, verse 18, he prays for all the saints. And then if you were to go into the moral exhortation of the letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, where Paul begins to call us to obedience, uh, the moral exhortation in the back half of Ephesians finds its most practical and its most powerful motive in the identity of believers, not as sinners, of course, but as saints. So Ephesians 5, 3, but sexual immorality, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
And finally, in chapter 6, verse 18, Paul once again makes the reference to his prayer and supplication for all the saints. Does this mean that if you are in Christ, you no longer sin? Sadly, it does not. But it does mean at least this. In Christ, sin's penalty, sin's power, and even one day, sin's presence has been dealt a death blow through the gospel. If you are in Christ, sin's penalty has been absorbed. Jesus bore that penalty for you on the cross. If you are in Christ, the reign of sin's power has been broken in your life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And if you are in Christ, one day when you take your last breath or he comes to be with you, sin's presence will be no more. This is good news. This is actually the good news of the good news. And it's the good news of the good news that surprisingly few professing Christians understand, much less live. Our fundamental identity and union with Christ is not primarily sinner. It's overwhelmingly saint. Now, because that's true, because of our identity in Jesus, by grace through faith in him, this opens up some serious possibilities for us as a church. To use the language that we've been learning in our study of Ephesians so far, we can together pursue some major league imperatives by virtue of some spectacular indicatives. So this morning we're going to revel in two indicatives, two truths that are true of you if you are in Christ, and then two imperatives that ought to follow those truths. So here's the first indicative, the first truth this morning. If you are in Christ, you are an heir to unsearchable future riches. If you are in Christ, you are an heir to unsearchable future riches. Now, trusting that you have your Bibles open to the passage that was just read a few moments ago, the passage that begins on page 976 in the Red Bibles, follow along with me as we give our attention to verses 11 and 12 in Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So verse 11 opens up with the proclamation that if you are in Christ, you have been predestined for an inheritance. Now, we've encountered those categories before. Just two weeks ago, Uh, Guy unfolded verses 4 and 5, and we learn that in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We're hearing very similar language here in verse 11, aren't we? In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. So verse 5 speaks of adoption and sonship, right? And here in verse 11 we see the logical implication of such inclusion in God's family, namely, inheritance. This is so sweet. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Um, Paul himself makes this connection, actually, in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, when he writes, We are children of God, 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So in Christ, we are predestined for adoption. That makes us sons and daughters of God, even heirs, heirs to an inheritance. Now, if you're looking carefully at verses 11 and 12, and you've looked carefully at point one, you may notice a little discrepancy in in tenses between how things are worded. Uh, Verse 11 says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. But point one talks about unsearchable future riches. Well, this is relevant. Which is it? Is the inheritance something we've got now? Or is it something we can enjoy later? Which is it? And you know the answer in this church. The answer to most either-or questions in the Bible is yes. Let's give each of these truths their full force without worrying about what kind of scheme is favored here so that as we put them together, we can see the biblical balance. Verse 11, it's clear enough. We have obtained the inheritance. In him, it's ours. We have it. We have obtained the inheritance. But if you skipped ahead to the end of verse 14, he speaks of our inheritance as something we have not yet acquired possession of. You see that? Verse 14. So in Christ, the inheritance is currently ours, and at the same time, we strain forward for the prize because we haven't yet attained it. This is classic, sort of already, not yet, union with Christ language. It's a common New Testament way of talking about several different aspects of our salvation. Well, what, what is this inheritance? That might be helpful to ponder. What is the inheritance? Notice first that just like any inheritance, uh, that we have in no way, shape, or form earned it. It's an inheritance that we receive solely by the appointment of God the Father, two weeks ago, sermon, through the accomplishment of God the Son, last week's sermon. When Peter describes the inheritance, in 1 Peter 1.4, he calls it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Which is interesting, because everything in this world is perishable, defiled, and fading. So whatever this inheritance is, it cannot be anything we have ever known in our lives. The inheritance that the children of God will one day acquire possession of is something that can only be known in its fullness in heaven. Peter says it's kept in heaven for you. So so what is it? What's the inheritance? I think the inheritance is the completion of our union with Jesus Christ. That's what I think it is. Namely, full sanctification and afterward glorification. To use the language that we learned several weeks ago, the different rooms of union with Christ, it's like we're leaving the weight room of sanctification. We put down that final weight and we walk into the ballroom of glorification. I think that's what the inheritance is. Our eternal rest. It's what Paul prays for in Ephesians 3.19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, what greater heirloom could the father offer his children? Could he bequeath to his children than the promise that they will be one day filled with all the fullness of God? 
There's nothing greater that he could give us. Uh, Paul explains it in another way in Ephesians 4.13. He says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, if you know Jesus, you will one day be sinless and whole and healthy and safe and clean and comforted and satisfied beyond your wildest expectations in this life in Jesus. It's coming. It's coming. You say, well, just not soon enough then. Which reminds me of the closing moments of one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons. In an episode called Homer the Heretic, Homer skips church one Sunday, actually a successive string of Sundays because he's having so much fun. Eventually, he comes back to the fold, and in the end, the credits are rolling, and he's walking with God through the clouds of heaven, these great big yellow feet in sandals with this flowing robe. And Homer asks, God, what's the meaning of life? And the Lord replies, oh, Homer, you know I can't tell you that. And he says, why? He says, you'll find out when you die. I can't wait that long. God says to him, you can't wait six months. (laughs) You know, our lives are a vapor. They are a mist that's here for a little while and then vanishes. If you're a Christian, here's what I can tell you. You have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, it's yours. It's present possession. And it's an inheritance that you will one day acquire full possession of in glory. Bear this in mind on your worst days. If you are in Christ, you're going to heaven. If you are in Christ, you are an heir to unsearchable future riches. You will one day be filled with all the fullness of God. You will be fully Christ-like. Hang on. So... Live with a a constant attitude of humble gratitude. I feel like Chuck Swindoll saying that, but I have to say that. Live with a constant attitude of humble gratitude. Now, there's no imperatives in the first three chapters of Ephesians, so we got to insert one here, or you're not going to get any direction all summer long. Why gratitude? That's not the first thing that would come to my mind. That is the first thing that comes to the New Testament's mind when it thinks about our inheritance. If you are in Christ, you are an heir to unsearchable future riches, so live with a constant attitude of humble gratitude. If you are an heir to such future riches, how then should you live today? The simple and profound biblical answer is gratitude. Gratitude. Thanksgiving. So Colossians 1.12 encourages us to give thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Or Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's it's just not much more complicated than that. But honestly, how much of your life is characterized by that? By simple gratitude. Test yourself when things don't go your way, from car trouble to character assassination to cancer diagnosis, 
how quickly do you take the long view of your inheritance? John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, once painted a really neat picture. Newton gives the following illustration. He says, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Maybe that didn't fall on you like it fell on me. I think that's very, very helpful. We need assistance in satirizing our carping and complaining as 21st century believers. We are a fussy people, aren't we? We grouse and grouch and crab and whine and gripe and fault find, and we haven't even hit the fellowship hall, right, on our way out of church. Oh, let's not do that. Let's be a church so committed to dwelling upon our future riches that gratitude is our native language. Some of you have been around this church long enough to have remembered Emma Liebrens. She died at 97 years of age. Emma was blind when I met her. She never knew what I looked like. But she lived the final year of her life as we began our ministry here. And she would walk out. I would stand in the back and shake hands. She would hug me. And I would say, how are you, Emma? And she would say, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. And she, and she was. It's so attractive. I lost my place. So, let's live out on a daily basis the steady state reality of just simple, unassuming, humble gratitude. Now, second point today, and in view of time will be brief, but we want to touch down here at least for a moment. Um, there's, a, there's a not yet component to this text this morning. That's verses 11 and 12. But there's also an already component, verses 13 and 14, that we want to take a look at. There's a not yet aspect to our inheritance. That's true, but there's some already. We'll couple the imperative right along with the indicative. So here's the second point with the application. If you are in Christ, you have access to spectacular present resources. So speak and act as one who has been sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have access to spectacular present resources. So speak and act as one who has been sealed by or, or with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. If you are in Christ, you have access to spectacular present resources. Now, there's so much more gold than we could possibly mine in these two verses with the time that remains. So allow me to make two observations from them and then one general application to follow. Notice in verse 13 that the moment 
that we heard, it's interesting to hear these things about ourselves, the moment evidently that we heard and believed the gospel, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 13? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. A seal in the ancient world is the way that an owner would would mark his property. Kings would fix their seal to their possessions and they would stamp their very own image on it. So the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer is compared to the seal of God himself. He's, He's exhibiting us, calling us his own. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit is called the guarantee of our inheritance. Translations vary a little bit on this point, but guarantee is a good good translation. Other translations might say the pledge or the earnest, the down payment of our future inheritance. That too is a powerful image. Think about a perspective as a prospective buyer when you put earnest money down on a house. What are you communicating to the seller in the moment that you do that? You are serious about acquiring possession of this. So the Holy Spirit not only is the earnest, but he is also, in effect, the the down payment. God is communicating to us in sealing us with the Holy Spirit, in depositing the third person of the Trinity in our souls, that he's resolute, he is determined, he is tenacious about us to draw us toward our inheritance, toward our full possession of it. So, what's the application here? Uh, For the application, you'd have to turn with me to Ephesians 4, verses 29 to 32. So let's do that as we close. Ephesians 4, 29 to 32. Talk about wheels to the road. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 4, 29 to 32, and be looking for the sealing of the Spirit here. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, granted, the sealing of the Spirit would have hundreds, if not thousands, of legitimate applications in our lives. But Paul flags this one here in Ephesians 4, 29 to 32, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we should pay some attention. Speak and act as one who has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Commenting on this, Peter O'Brien writes, God is not simply promising us our final inheritance, but actually providing us with a foretaste of it. Can you imagine your mouth becoming this sort of fountain of life for other people, not to mention the untold blessing that it would bring you? Ephesians 4, 29 to 32, 
is not a heavenly pipe dream. It is a this world reality for those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. With God's gracious help, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you can become the sort of person who speaks and acts, not just responds and reacts to the world around you. And you can do so with kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. It makes perfect sense when you are freshly tasting your own forgiveness in Christ through the gospel. You will become a forgiving person the more you dwell on your forgiveness. Have you tasted the forgiveness of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, let's test. Are you, as a rule, bitter and angry and selfish and short with people? Do you resort to crude joking or constant levity as a way of life? Are you stingy with your time or your resources, your abilities? Do you find it difficult to do pro bono work for people? Do you harbor resentment easily? Do you find it difficult to forgive people who have hurt you? Do you actually think you have a right to any of these attitudes? How much more the creator of the universe, who is holy, who is blameless, who is righteous, who did not count our sins against us. Look at the motive once again in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. If that list of of attitudes and life-dominating sins affects you this morning, if that is who you are, if you know Christ, I want to invite you to receive afresh the forgiveness that you've known for so long. Demonstrate your sealing of the Spirit by turning to Him afresh today in repentance and faith. And if you don't know Jesus, if this is just simply the way that you operate and you didn't know there was any other way, I want to tell you there's a a different way to live. And you can receive forgiveness, you can receive power, you can receive pardon through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on a cross to forgive you of your sins and was raised on the third day to provide you power to live a new life. If you are in Christ, you do have access to spectacular present resources. So speak and act as those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our fundamental identity in union with Christ is not primarily sinner. It's overwhelmingly saint. If you are in Christ, you are an heir to unsearchable future riches, so live with a constant attitude of of humble gratitude. And if you're in Christ, you have access. You have access to spectacular present resources. So speak and act as one who has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I hope that maybe one effect of this text in your soul and, and in mine as well this morning is the growing conviction that biblical doctrine is practical and 
that our practice is unavoidably doctrinal. The doctrine of union with Christ is especially this way. The imperatives flow from the indicatives. The indicatives are designed to give rise to the imperatives. It's interesting that from time to time in the history of the Christian church, and we are in one of those times right now, it becomes fashionable, becomes popular to say things like, Christianity is a life, not a doctrine. People actually have said that, and they're saying it today. To which the Apostle Paul would simply say, what? What are you talking about? That's crazy. Sound doctrine is the root of the Christian life. And the Christian life is the fruit of sound doctrine. So he says to us in 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely. In fact, not only does right living flow from right thinking in Paul's mind, but so does right praying. And next week, it will be our extraordinary opportunity to follow the mind of the inspired apostle as he prays for the church in Ephesus. I've been studying the prayers of the Bible for 16 years now, and I've also participated in the prayers of the church for 16 years now. And every time I study biblical prayer, it never ceases to convict me that Paul's words in Romans 8.26 are true. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. We're not good at this. And so we would say with the disciples in Luke chapter 11, Lord, teach us to pray. So one week from today, we're going to explore Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, and seek to grow in our understanding and application of the privilege of prayer in union with Christ. And right now, let's seek to do that very thing. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are grateful for our redemption. Appointed by God the Father for redemption, a redemption accomplished by God the Son, and now today we see the completion of this Trinitarian paragraph, a redemption applied by the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for this magnificent sentence that began two weeks ago that we're finally putting a period in today. All one sentence when Paul originally wrote it. Thank you for our Bibles. Thank you that they constantly point us to the good news of Jesus. Lord, we, we really don't need good advice at the end of the day. We need good news. We need forgiveness and power and motive and the people of God around us to help walk out our covenant commitments. So would you help us as we leave this place? God grant us from the inside out, as we just sang this morning, to be serious about living in light of our future inheritance, loaded, full to overflowing with gratitude. And two, Lord, would you grant us the inestimable privilege of Uh, imaging forth that sealing of the Holy Spirit as we are careful for uh, out of an abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, Lord, may the mouth and the mouths that have praised you today be filled with thanksgiving 
and speaking the truth in love this week as we leave this place. In Jesus' great name we ask. Amen.